1: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to
2: supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining the SHIFT community. You can go to steady.media forward slash the SHIFT and become a member of the SHIFT. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's steady.media forward slash the SHIFT. Hello and welcome to The SHIFT the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. By her own admission, today's guest, award-winning journalist Porna Bell, wasn't looking forward to 40. She feared, as society had taught her, that it might be the beginning of the end, and so she set out to prove herself wrong. Porna has written two memoirs about grief and mental health in the wake of her husband Rob's death by suicide, and followed those up with Stronger, an inspiring re-evaluation of women's strength, interwoven with her own discovery of powerlifting. I kid you not. It's no surprise that Porna has become an advocate for diversity, mental health, and body image. Now she's turned her hand to fiction. Her debut novel, In Case of Emergency, is a warm, funny, immensely entertaining story of friendship, sisterhood, being single in a couple's world and a brown woman in a white world.
1: Working out what my core beliefs were, what my expectations were, really, really helped to weed out the people that I just don't want to bother with or give the time of day to. And then that then frees up time to actually spend time talking to people that i do want to you know possibly go out on a date with or spend more time with
2: porna joined me to talk about taking back power why she's all in favor of marriage but has absolutely no plans to do it again her search for midlife role models as a brown woman and embracing her 40 something goddess well thank you for coming on the shift porna it's lovely to have you first of all congratulations on stronger winning a sports book award
1: I am still in absolute shock about that. Um, I can't believe it, but thank you very much for that. Did you think of it as a sports book? No, not at all. And I mean, I don't think of myself as a sporty person because pretty much for 80% of my life, I wasn't a sporty person. But also winning that award, it was really uh, slim odds because number one, you're dealing with the fact that, you know, um, I'm not a professional sports person and a lot of the people nominated for those awards are, but also it is overwhelmingly male dominated. So as a non-sporty person, in her early 40s,
2: winning a sports award, I did not expect that at all. I mean, when I saw you'd won, my first thought was, firstly, congratulations. My second thought was, is it a sports book? And then my third thought was, wow, 41, female, not sporty, and brown. (laughs) Yeah. Like, massive achievement.
1: Yeah. I think out of everything that I have ever won, this probably has been the thing that has meant the most because it was, in my mind anyway, the most difficult thing to have won for all of those reasons, you know, all of those intersections that you've just stated. So when they announced that it had won, I didn't have anything prepared. But the benefit of also being in your 40s is that you're a lot more confident and able to talk at length about things that you had no <laughs> idea um, what you're talking about. So, so that definitely held me in good stead had I won it earlier on in my life, perhaps.
2: Yeah, loads of experience of standing on a stage burbling, which you never do, actually. You never burble, ever. Since we've kind of started on that that route about where you are now, let's start there and then go backwards. So um, when I read Stronger, you and I have talked about this before, there was just a tiny kind of throwaway phrase about how you were slightly dreading being 40. So tell me about that, about what you were dreading and why and about the massive change in that attitude that we've seen over the last year, 18 months.
1: So from memory, I think that line may have been in the chapter where I was talking about menopause and definitely, you know, older women Mm -hmm. engaging in sport and physical activity of whatever description. So I'm not talking about necessarily even sports, you know, this is just moving your body in some way. And it was really, really important to include those chapters in the book, because I had felt that the idea of what you do with your body and what your body is capable of is just not roadmapped for older women in any shape or form. You know, if you go to um, your local news agent and you try and see people who represent you in your age demographic in mainstream women's fitness magazines, we're just not there. So for me, when I was approaching 40, the only kind of, um, I would say, templates I had for what that looked like was my mother's generation, basically, you know, and I didn't necessarily really seek out older women on social media at that point, also because I feel like while we've seen, you know, a real burst of people coming through in the last like year or so, I I definitely don't think that, you know, even as recently as, you know, three, four years ago, that that was particularly present. And so because I didn't really know much about getting older beyond, you know, real horror stories that I'd heard about menopause, it just seemed like something to be feared. It seemed like something to, you know, dread. And also, The overwhelming message seemed to be that the older you get, the weaker you get. You know, that's it. It's it's sort of the beginning of the end, et cetera, et cetera. And So for example, I do powerlifting, which is competitive weightlifting, and I do it at a very amateur level, you know, this isn't a humble brag, but in comparison to other people who do the sport, same sport as me, I'm I'm really, really average. But what I saw there were older women, I saw women in their 50s, 60s and 70s. And these are incredibly strong women. And also, I know that physically at the age of 41 and a half, I am physically far stronger than I was in my 20s and my 30s. So It seemed to me that this idea, you know, what I had believed about getting older was wrong. And actually, it was ridiculously ageist. You know, we know we live in a massively ageist society. And so I think for me, that was a really important part of figuring that out and confronting that fear and actually finding out that, you know, yes, of course, there are things that happen to you as you get older. But if you are armed with the knowledge of it, if you have a community of like-minded people that see it as liberation and growth then that's something that can absolutely change how you view the future and that definitely was something that had started happening with me so even though i'm not going to lie like in my 39th year when i sort of thought about being 40 i just thought oh i really don't want to and then i turned 40 and it was almost it was almost comedic how much better i just felt and how much um sounds really cheesy and i'm i'm sort of cringing slightly but i just felt more powerful and that there was some stuff that I could just let go of and put down. And I think because I'd expected it to happen gradually as it had done, you know, when I turned 30, because it took me a few years to acclimatised to being in my 30s. But this was ludicrous. It was overnight. And I just thought, oh my God, this is, this is the start of an incredible decade. And I'm really looking forward to whatever comes down the line because I get to shape that and I get to make that, you know, everything good that I want it to look like, I can work towards making that happen for myself.
2: It's so weird, isn't it? Because we really lionise youth and it's like, oh, your are 20s. And, but I don't think I've spoken to a single woman for this podcast or for anything else who has said, yeah, I'd love to go back. I would just want to be 25 again. I I can't think of anything worse, but I don't think I've spoken to anyone who's been like, yeah, I want to be there.
1: Well, the only time I ever feel like that is when I have a hangover and I'm just like, oh, (laughs) Oh, for the recovery times of my my youth, you know, as you're sort of dealing with like a two, three-day hangover, that is literally the only time. In any other aspect of my life, um, I wouldn't go back if you paid me.
2: What's the right term for it? It's not weight training. Is it power lifting? What's the right so, term for what you do?
1: <laughs> so weight training is a type of sport. And within that, you can have different types of lifting. And the sport that I do is powerlifting, which is one of several different types of strength sports. Do you think you'd be feeling the way you feel about being in your 40s if you didn't do that? No, I mean, unequivocally, no. Um, because I think that What powerlifting has given me, which is much bigger than just physical strength is that it has played a massive, massive part in liberating me from what I call the hamster wheel of constantly working towards trying to be as slim as possible. And I think that if I hadn't discovered powerlifting and, you know, for anyone who doesn't know why or what it is or whatever, it's it's essentially you're lifting the heaviest weights that your body can possibly manage. And it's a very slow, very technical sport. So, you know, there's sort of no rush about with it and it's very methodical but in order to do it you have to eat properly you have to prioritize your sleep and every other part of your life has to kind of fall in place around it. And if it doesn't, you're just not going to be able to perform well or do well. And, and, you know, for me, that's a really important thing in terms of just working towards a goal that makes me feel good about myself. And I think if I hadn't discovered powerlifting, I would still be doing the same thing, which is, you know, worrying about how much food I was eating, you know, I need to go to the gym to work off X, Y, and Z. And I think I would still probably feel insecure and dissatisfied about my body. And when I think think about how i used to feel about my body. i'm not saying that it's perfect, sam, and i'm not saying that i don't have days when, you know, i fret or i worry, of course i do. you know, it's impossible if you live in society to completely extract yourself from that, but i'm a lot more sane around that kind of stuff than i feel i used to be, and it's not something that negatively impacts how i think and feel about myself in the way that it used to in my 30s. i feel very, very liberated from that and i'm very thankful for that.
2: Do you think there's an element to which it has kind of given you a sense of your body's purpose? When we're young, it's like, this is massively generalizing, but I'm just going to massively generalize here. It's like your body's purpose is to be hot and then it's to have babies and then nothing. And then there's, like you say, you can't see any examples of how to be except for maybe very much older women. And I just wonder whether that strength and building the strength in your body, whether it gave you a purpose that you might not otherwise have had for your body.
1: Okay, I'm going to answer how I think. (laughs) Yeah how one of us is coherent here yes yeah. so I would say that one of the things it did wasn't so much a message of love your body because that's a very difficult thing to do day in and day out what it did was it made me feel neutral about my body and understand my body and effectively what that does is it just connects all of those and by that, I mean that you start to see your body as something that you need to look after and be kind to. Because when we think about getting older, I don't know that a lot of us, especially as women, because of that pervasive pressure of needing to look quote marks hot or, you know, needing to look as youthful as possible, I feel that it is a massive distraction from sure the patriarchy from various other areas of society from what's really important and what's really important is for women to be kind to their bodies to nurture them to stave off things like osteoporosis to look after things like our bone density and our joint movements and all of that stuff or even to just move our bodies in a way that makes us feel mentally good, that isn't anchored to a goal around aesthetics, which is literally the reason why I would say, for example, I would never want to go back to my 20s, is that seemed to be the overriding goal. And I mean, I understand why we feel like that, but I just don't think it actually creates anything useful. And it certainly doesn't create lifelong habits, you know, that are going to help us as we get older. So I have definitely started to think about my body in a different way, which is not to say that I don't think about aesthetics. And it's not to say that, you know, of course, like, I want to um, look after myself and present myself in a way that I feel is attractive. But that's not the most important thing. Like, you know, it's kind of nuts that we give more thought, for example, to what we're going to do with our pensions than we do with what our bodies are going to be like, you know, when we're in our 60s and 70s. And, I'm not saying that one is more important than the other. I'm just saying that some things have equal importance. And for me, the distinction has been that it's not sort of exchanging one for the other. These things can all coexist at the same time. But it is really important for me to think about body health and, you know, habits that I'm doing. And again, that comes down to things like, I don't know, how much alcohol I drink or how much sleep I'm getting, because all of this stuff adds up the older I get in terms of when stuff will start to go wrong and maybe like how I recover from that. And that's definitely something I've become a lot more aware of the older I've gotten.
2: I've seen you describe getting older as your superpower. Yeah. I mean, I feel like
1: it is in some ways, you know, obviously things can get more complicated, uh, whether that's, you know, health wise or any other aspect of your life. But I feel that getting older has clarified things for me in a way that nothing else has. And I I know that, you know, of course, I'm not the first person (laughs) to, to have discovered this. But the clarity that it has given me around the things that i want to work towards the people that i want in my life it feels like a fog that has just cleared and i think that the sort of the confidence that i feel as an older woman is in my life anyway unprecedented i've never really felt like this and the reason why i'm so grateful and why i describe it as a superpower is because it persists despite everything else in society telling me that older women are redundant
2: yeah it's exactly that isn't it it's like all the forces around you are dismissing you I mean I wish I'd got there when I was 41 but I certainly feel like that now which is just like I don't care yeah take it or leave it yeah you've always been quite together like that (laughs) I know you're like laughing now, like rocking, in fact, rocking and laughing. I think I know that from the inside, that's different. But from outside, you seem to have been very good at going, Okay, these are the things that I need to put in place to feel how I want to feel or be how I want to be. And I don't mean in a like a five year plan work thing. I mean, in a, I suppose, mental health way. That
1: is incredibly kind of you. And yes, I am rocking with laughter because that's not how I... Necessarily always feel inside. But I think that it's just about boundaries, and boundaries used to be something that I was incredibly bad at doing. And, you know, like a lot of people who are reformed people pleasers, it takes a lot of work, I think, to get to that point. But I think it's just a realization that. You could follow every single rule and you could check every single box and the house is still always going to win. It's not going to be you. Do you know what I mean? So Mm. you have to kind of extricate yourself from that and figure out what is it that you specifically need in your life. And that will be very different to what it is for me and other people in your life and so on. And just sticking to that, but also knowing that in five or 10 years time that might change completely. And that's Perfectly okay. Like, all you can do is deal with what's in front of you and try and make your reality around you as close an approximation to what makes you and your loved ones happy. And that's, I think, just sort of how I've tried to operate in the last few years because anything else is exhausting. And I've just learned the hard way that you can try and do everything right and it's still either not enough for other people who set those expectations for you and
2: they don't have the right to set those expectations for you anyway. One of the themes that's in the novel and I can't decide whether it's best to ask you maybe if before I start asking you about the theme which ties into what you've just said maybe if you just tell us a little bit about Balcomar and what kind of made you decide actually I'm going to write fiction now after you've written three incredibly successful memoir issues. Mm.
1: So my debut fiction which is called in case of emergency, I think I could have only written this in my 40s. And the reason why I say that is because I started many awful, terrible manuscripts in my 20s. And every single time I started something like that, it was, how can I write this in a way that will make everyone marvel at how clever I am and how out of the box I can think. And they were terrible because I was writing a book that was, you know, actually a vanity project. And it it wasn't about the book. It wasn't about a narrative. It was more about me wanting validation from other people. And this specific book was when I had just arrived at a resting place is how I would describe it, where I just thought, actually, I just want to write a book that I would want to read. And you know, rather than beating myself up about writing, let's say, a literary book, I just want to write a book that someone will take on holiday and enjoy or be able to read it at night. And I know because I have these books on my bedside that I just want this person to go to bed and just race to their bed because they want to just get stuck into that book. And I wanted it to be funny. I wanted it to be poignant. And I wanted the protagonist to be someone who reflected people like me, people like my friends, who are very rarely, for example, depicted on TV because when you usually see South Asian women, particularly older South Asian women, you know we have this like yoke of oppression around us, and everyone is telling us and defining who we are. And that has changed. You know there has been some incredible TV shows like um, We Are Lady Parts, uh, Never Have I Ever, and so on. And there are some amazing modern women's fiction authors who are out there at the moment who are just sort of starting out. But I wanted to write a book about a woman in her late 30s who just didn't have everything figured out came from a, a South Asian family who again also were unlike South Asian families that I've seen depicted on TV which usually tend to be super conservative quite stern and so on which again is not my own life experience of things but I wanted this woman to go through an experience and this isn't a spoiler because it's on the book jacket cover yeah but basically <laughs> it's the first chapter you're fine <laughs> yeah she is you know uh, she's at the top of her game in her career she she's sort of got this high-flying job and she's um, you know going through a bit of a time at work and then basically is texting on her phone while she's storming down the street and falls into the open mouth of a beer cellar and kind of like ends up waking up in hospital, you know, and by luck she hasn't got any major injuries but what's happened is the hospital have called her um, emergency contact and she sort of wakes up and sees that it's, you know, her like ex-boyfriend who she forgot that she put down as an emergency contact standing at the foot of her bed and it prompts this whole Reckoning of, you know, why is there no one in her life that she feels that she can rely on? Why has she sort of insulated herself in that way? Who are the people that matter? But also, redefining her relationships with her family and understanding that just because you have a memory of your family history doesn't make it fact and everyone has you know their own history that they've cobbled together from their own perspective and how actually sometimes having conversations around that stuff is really important to figuring things out and um as a protagonist she can be a little bit frustrating you know she wasn't supposed to be absolutely likable and there are definitely some moments where you You just might be like, oh my God, like why are you making the same mistakes all over again? But I wanted her to be flawed. I wanted her to be self-deprecating. And essentially I also wanted her to just examine those big life goals and expectations like getting married and having kids and for that to not have to be (laughs) the backbone of a narrative around a woman in her late thirties. And they're just incidental things that actually really what's at the heart of the book is figuring out the stuff that's really important to you and making decisions that are right for you versus what the status quo is telling you to do. But I also wanted to write a book that would just make people laugh. And I've been told that it does do that.
2: Yeah, it does. It really does. Before we came on, I was thinking if I had picked it up at the airport on the way on holiday and then read it on the Sun Lounger, I would be very, very happy. (laughs) Honestly, it's like a very, very satisfying Sun Lounger read. Thank you. So make sure they've got a big pile at Gatwick. Yeah, I hope
1: so. But also make sure you keep your copy and tell other people to buy it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, don't leave it in the hotel library. (laughs) Don't share it. Yeah. (laughs) But um, before I took it off another direction, I love you for bringing it back to kind of where I was going to come in before you explained the story behind In Case of Emergency, because what I thought was really interesting, it's not in any way the most dominant theme, but a the kind of theme that threads all the way through it is about unlearning that learnt behaviour that we acquire from all kinds of different backgrounds in our childhood you know like there's a bit quite near the beginning where you talk about that kind of going home to see her parents and how everybody turns back into a 15 year old and starts squabbling with their siblings the minute they mm-hmm. go back home but i kind of had this vision of little bell kind of quite self-sufficient like a bit on her own and they're always like you saw we talking about people pleasing her earlier like the the kind of learning to not make a fuss and get on with it and you know, all of those things that are about managing other people's reactions, almost. And you kind of, you rationalize it to yourself, if you think about it at all, in as much as it's like, oh, I'm doing this to make their life easier. So they won't worry. But as you said, it's you don't want to be concerned about their concern.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a very perceptive take on her. I would say that also, She doesn't understand that you can't compartmentalize your life like that. And actually, even though you may do things in a way or or she behaves in a way, you know, to make life, quote marks, easier because she just thinks, well, if she doesn't tell her parents about what's going on in her life or, or, or even, you know, tells her older sister about what's going on in her life. Then it's fine because, you know, then she won't get hassled by her family and, you know, they won't sort of ask all of these follow up questions and so on. But in doing so, she she misses the point entirely, which is that, yes, in, in some ways you may be removing, you know, hassle from your life. But you also miss out on all of the other amazing things that comes from having, you know, strong relationships and and connections with people, which is essentially people being there for you and supporting you when you really need it. And I think that, you know, the crux of this book really, what it starts off with, is that catalyst of that accident making you realise that you do need support and, you know, no one lives and exists as an island and actually asking for help and support isn't necessarily a weakness. And that's definitely something that I think women particularly older women struggle with, you know, especially after I think you get towards your late thirties and and early forties of just feeling as if you should be able to deal with it all on your own. And that can be, I think, an incredibly lonely place to be if, you know, you're you're sort of at a point where you don't have your phone or friend or the person that you would immediately call if something goes badly. And I was just quite interested in exploring the kind of lonely reality for that, because also I just think a lot of people actually do struggle with it and do struggle with, you know, not necessarily being able to make friends, you know, the older you get or feeling as if the last set of friends that you had, you know, whether that's your university friends or work colleagues or whatever it is, just might not come round again and almost, giving up on that part of yourself. So that was definitely something I wanted to explore in it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because it's something that I've been talking about with the women who are members of The Shift. It's that kind of almost the pressure around friendship. I mean, friendship is it's a big theme, but it is something that Belle struggles with. But the number of those women who kind of said, I feel like I'm maybe almost a failure if I haven't got this great big girl gang. And how do you make new friends if you're in midlife and you have, like we both have, an at-home job and you don't have a school. Gate scenario. How do you go about making friends and nurturing those? And I think there's an assumption that's something you just know how to do. And people, somebody's actually said that to me. But you just know how to do it, and it made me think. Well, I didn't just know how to do it.
1: I mean, well, also, did you just know? No, because I mean, the thing is, if you look at it from you know, um, let's say a behavioural science point of view, you don't just know. You make friends at those very pivotal moments in your life in school at university because of circumstance because You all happen to be in the same place. Well, you know, for example, when you make friends with your work colleagues, and when you no longer have that as a structure, and when some of those relationships just haven't, you know, worked out or, stood the test of time, you have to sort of learn how to almost engage a muscle that you've never really had to use before. Because yes, okay, obviously, there are different personality types, and some people find it easier to make friends than others. But I would still say, you know, when you look at everything on balance, the quantity of friends says nothing about a person versus the quality of friends who are actually there for you. And that is, I would say, even for the most gregarious person, that will still always be a very, very small number of people. The thing that i think changed for me personally i can't speak for my protagonist cuz she basically takes the lazy way out and tries to yeah. <laughs> old relationships with people but i think definitely for me personally it was realizing that making new friends is very much like dating and that actually it requires an enormous amount of proactive effort and it requires putting yourself out there and you know trying hobbies and and chatting to people but also really knowing when to cut your losses you know in terms of in the same way that you wouldn't go out on a date if someone said something extremely problematic that was at odds with you know your core belief system that you don't you don't ignore that when it comes to friendships and and I think that that is something that you get better and better at doing as you get older but you still have to start somewhere first and it's really intimidating when you start out.
2: So your friend dating and your dating dating and your self dating. <laughs> I saw on Instagram. Let's talk a bit about being single and I think the pressure not to be. Okay.
1: So the pressure to be single and the pressure not to be. Do you mean in terms of
2: where my life is right now or just generally? Obviously, I want you to talk about where your life is right now, but also generally. I think that there is well, people conflate being in a couple and being married as well, which I feel very conscious of, but that sense that there's the the social pressure and then for your character and for you, maybe, there's also the pressure of your community of being a South Asian woman and what's expected of you or not expected of you, or what people think will be expected of you because you're a South Asian woman. How have you navigated that over the last few years?
1: So I would say that my experience differs from my protagonist because she doesn't have you know, any deep trauma in her background. So she doesn't have, beyond the breaking of certain relationships, she doesn't have anything that was particularly, you know, too dark. So in terms of the pressure that she probably feels as a woman in her late 30s is um, probably a lot more intense because, you know, if you've never been married or if you've never really had significant relationships coming from the South Asian community, and I know this, you know, from looking at friends of mine and so on, that pressure can be quite intense depending on, you know, the type of family you come from and so on. And definitely it is viewed regardless of your career success as the dominant marker of success if you're a man or a woman if you come from the South Asian community. With regards to I think how Belle feels about that the thing I really like about her is that she doesn't allow that pressure to crush her too much maybe because she you know has been sort of quite distanced from her family for for quite a while But um, I think she just decides to do what she wants to do when she does it and doesn't necessarily think, you know, whether or not it's going to disappoint her parents, which I really admire. And I wish I could be like that, to be quite frank. But in terms of my own personal life, you know, my story is very different. And Rob passed away in 2015, which was devastating for so many reasons. But I think that when it comes to, you know, he passed away seven years ago, and I can't even believe that it's been seven years as I sort of say this. But I think my viewpoint on, you know, how you recover from something like that and, and your capacity to be in relationships and to be single and or not single or whatever it is I mean that Sam has been a real for want of a better word journey because it's been very very up and down and I think that you know I started dating um, about a couple of years after he passed away but I didn't put any pressure on myself as to what you know there wasn't supposed to be an end point I just sort of thought you know okay I'm dating like this is literally all I'm capable of doing and I'm not going to overthink it now yes there is this sort of subtle pressure that you feel from other people when you talk about let's say, you know, even casual dates where people just get very excited about it on your behalf. And they say things like, oh, you know, I'm sure that you're going to meet someone special and so on. And I understand that the intention of it is good. And I know that regardless of how emancipated you might think you are from, you know, the romantic storyline, when you hear that someone who's gone through a very tough time has started dating again, you get very hopeful on their behalf. And I could feel that hope when I would talk to them. But for me, that just wasn't important. It was just, important to figure things out and also you know, as someone who has been very vocal when it comes to things like suicide prevention and mental health and so on, I'm very Googleable, right? And if you are okay. who is about to go on a date with me, or you've gone on a date with me, and then you Google me, there is—I I completely understand why people get freaked out, especially you know in sort of the early years of this. And I think I just felt very uncertain about well, what do I do with that? And but at the same time, I just thought, well, I'm not going to apologize for the work that I'm doing, and. You know, this is who I am. So you kind of have to take it or leave it. And I think that I'm a fairly, you know, well put together person, and I, I'm pretty honest with people about how I feel about things. And um, now that the way I look at things is definitely in the last couple of years, and I would say the pandemic has had a, a massively um, important role to play in this is that it has really clarified what it is that I actually want from dating and where I see my life going. And again, this might change. So, you know, need to put that out there. But dating was making me really unhappy because in the back of my mind, I thought that it needed to have an end point, the end point being that you meet someone that you settle down with and get into a relationship with and it's serious, et cetera, et cetera. And Pandemic gave me a lot of time to think as it did a lot of people. And I realized I just don't want that. I don't want the relationship escalator. I don't want to have to date someone and think about the next steps that have to take place in order for me to tick those boxes to show everyone that I'm okay and that, you know, Rob's death didn't break me. Rob's death changed me in some, you know, not so great ways. It changed me in terms of it. I I don't want to say positive because I obviously don't wish in a million years that it ever happened, but I had to learn how to grow very quickly from from that from his death. And one of the things that has, has come as a result of that has been, I think, realizing that actually, you know, as much as I loved him, as much as I'm not closing myself off to the idea of loving someone else, I don't know that I ever want to get remarried again. And I don't know that I ever want to fuse My life together with someone. It doesn't mean that I can't share my life with someone. I just think that personally speaking, I have broadened my horizons around what a loving relationship looks like. But also most importantly, is that I think that the type of connection that you have with someone depends on the other person. I think that it's a very tricky thing to go into dating, you know, for me anyway, expecting there to have a very specific outcome. And I think that's what was making me unhappy because deep down I knew that I didn't necessarily want this like big, heavy, full on relationship. But I also knew that I wanted to kind of date and have fun and keep that door open for that significant someone. I'm burbling now. I do. I'm definitely burbling. But I feel like 100% being in my 40s is that I know that dating can be difficult. But I also know that I have simplified it for myself by being very, very clear about what I want from it. And at the same time, weaving in the flexibility to accommodate and allow for someone who makes me happy or excites me or who I want to spend time with. I think
2: that's so interesting because once you start to think about it, it's so goal oriented, isn't it, dating? It's like and the idea that that's not how you want your life to be, that yeah, you want other people in it, but that's like you're not dating so you'll meet someone so you'll move in with them so you'll marry them or, or whatever. It's just another social thing. Yeah, that you do. And you don't feel what well, I don't feel, I don't
1: feel that I have to contort myself into a shape or a personality that is appeasing to other people as a consequence of it. It doesn't mean that I can't compromise. It doesn't mean that I don't, um, you know, have a discussion with the other person around things. But it just means that, you know, I know my own mind around things. So, for example, one of the things that I put in in my dating profile is, is that whatever the interaction is, that respect is a really important part for me. And before, I never would have put something like that in my dating profile because, you know, you think, oh my God, well, what if that like freaks the other person out or it scares them off? But shouldn't respect be a fundamental basis of how you talk to each other on a dating app? And yet, very often, that doesn't always seem to be the case. So, I just feel like working out what my core beliefs were, what my expectations were, really, really helped to weed out the people that I just don't want to bother with or give the time of day to. And then that then frees up time to actually spend time talking to People that I do want to, you know, possibly go out on a date with or spend more
2: time with. Have the people around you, you know, your family, have they struggled with that?
1: Um, I think that my parents, my mum for sure, I know would love it if I got remarried because I think for her, that's something that she she's of a particular generation and I think that that would be something that she would love to see. But I have just been honest about it and I've just said, look, you know, I'm not sort of um, sitting there in my nunnery. Like I am dating and at, sometimes I date a few people at the same time. I just said I just don't see that as being the most important part of my life and if that changes, then it changes and fine But I just said, at the moment, I really like the way my life is going. And so I said, I know it's difficult for you to understand, but hopefully you'll be able to understand that what I'm doing at the moment makes me really happy. And that, you know, I have a very, very strong support network in terms of friends and family. I don't know if, you know, um, if everyone gets that. I think that there will always be, you know, a certain contingent of people who will be wondering whether or not I'm actually being honest with myself. But I'm the one that has to live my life and share my life with other people. So, you know, only I can really be the judge of that.
2: And what about the kid
1: thing? The kid thing is not a sad thing for me, actually. In fact, I did think I would have kids and I definitely think that I thought I would have kids with Rob. And then after that, I'm not saying that I completely let that go, but I was also not sure about it. And I think that when I then turned 40, I just thought, actually, no, as in it was a definitive no. Um, because I think, Sam, if I wanted kids, I'm sure you'd be able to tell. I'm very bloody minded. And I would. Yeah, yeah. I don't, we do all know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't I don't need a partner to achieve something like that with. And I would absolutely do that. And I haven't completely shut the door on like caretaking in some way, maybe when I get older, you know, and being able to share my life with or, or make someone else's life better as a consequence. But I think, it yeah, it was a quite a definitive thing where I turned 40 and I just thought, actually, no, it's a no. Because it's not a sad thing for me because I've never been ridiculously maternal and I've never really, even though I thought, oh, yeah, of course, like Rob and I would have kids, you know, that's what married people do. I don't know how to explain it in any other way other than like I know the distinction between friends of mine that have always wanted children and that it's been a consuming, you know, thought. Mm-hmm. And that just hasn't, that that wasn't me. So when I kind of made that decision and I thought, actually, I don't know that I uh, will be able to raise another human being. Um, I don't know that I feel generous enough with my life to be able to do so. There are all these other things that I want to do with my life that I would not be able to do if I had a child. And also for every single person that says, well, you might regret not having kids. I just thought, well, wouldn't the reverse be absolutely awful? Like what would happen if I had a child and I regretted that, you know, I, I think again, it's it's a it's a getting older thing. You just see a wider range of outcomes taking place. The older people get, and so what seems like, you know, this very this is going to sound so cynical, but you know, when you're in your 30s and everyone's getting married and they're starting to have kids, you can't see that. You, all you can see is this mad rush for everyone's lives are changing and the 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 rebirth of something new and. And then when people are sort of like been doing it for a while and you see the problems that kind of come up, it, it, I think for me, it's just a leveler. It just reminds me that life is not fixed and is not made more simple because you're married or because you have children. It's just complicated in a different way. And I think that since I made that decision to not have children, it has made me so much more loving and empathetic and generous towards the other children in my life, you know, my nieces and nephews, my my friends' children. But it has also meant that I am able to support spe- specifically the mothers in my life in a much more generous way than I probably felt before. Because I think before when I was uncertain, I felt like something had been taken from me or I was sort of knocked off this path, you know, after Rob passed away. And I didn't know how to make my peace with that. And I feel like I have made my peace with that because I'm, I, I can't long for something that I'm not really sure I wanted in the first place.
2: You're really close to
1: your niece, aren't you? I am. She's incredible. I mean, I know everyone says that about, you know their own nieces and nephews but she's an incredible human being and I definitely see myself as someone in her life that you know particularly the older she gets that I want to be that support system for her and also you know just give her as much love and support as she needs because I I had aunts like that when I was growing up and it was really important to be able to do that and I want to be able to do that for her
2: yeah to be that I think there are some people and I think I'm definitely one of these people I am much better I think at being the other adult. I mean, in my case, it was a stepmom, but that kind of one you can go to and talk to who doesn't have the parental stuff, the ones who can, with a clear conscience, buy you junk food and take you to see inappropriate films and listen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think also, particularly for, I would say, my sister, for my friends and so on, I think being able to offer them a space where they can also just be themselves and not have to think about being a parent and to organize fun stuff for them to do, you know, without their kids. I think that that's a really important function. Also just reminding them that there are other aspects to their identity, you know, not not by telling them, God, no, you know, not by pointing it out, but just by inviting them along to things, you know, and including them in things. And I think that that's a really important, you know, part to play, um, because I can imagine how you need a wide variety of friends that exist beyond your own children. And I am very happy to be one of those people that can provide that.
2: Does the relationship between Belle and her sister in the book bear any resemblance to your relationship with your big sister, Priya?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, because um, the relationship that Beryl has with her sister, they almost have to rebuild an entire relationship from scratch because uh, their lives sort of you know, started going in different directions because they've got a bit of a chunky age gap, you know, six years, which is a bit bit of a hard age gap to have, especially between sisters because the older sibling always feels like a, you know, a bit of a parent and they never managed to um, to bridge that gap or to talk about things or sort things out and so on. And so very much it is about how do you create that relationship when both of you are such different people as you are as adults, Whereas my, my sister and I have been pretty inseparable apart from, you know, when I was a teenager and she was a teenager and you have sort of like growth periods and so on. But we've always had a very, very close relationship. And we pretty much voice note each other about five or six times a day. It's, wow. I know. Yeah. We call them podcasts, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there probably is a podcast in them. <laughs> Don't let your agent hear or they'll be giving you another job. Before uh, we go to the questions that I always ask at the end, I just want to ask you one more thing. We touched very briefly earlier on how there are a lot more women speaking out about menopause and midlife and invisibility and all those things. But it struck me, and I have done loads of panels. I've done corporate events and it strikes me on nearly every occasion that everybody is white. So as a kind of a brown woman in her early forties, other than being that role model yourself, which you are being, but you know, you can't be all of the things to all of the people much as you're doing a really good job of that. Where are you getting your inspiration from? Where are you seeing your aging role models? For me, Instagram is a
1: massive part of that because um, you're absolutely right. And I would say that also, it has to be said, most of the aging role models, you know, who are kind of put out there are not just white, but they're also um, extremely, extremely slim. So, you know, when we think about things like body diversity, I feel like we've just got such a long way to go when it comes to older women. But Instagram is the leveler for me because it allows me to seek out communities um, who have just decided to create it for themselves, which, you know, a lot of um, black and brown women have done because they just aren't necessarily given those opportunities by the existing power structures that be. So I would say that there are definitely um, a lot of people that I follow on Instagram. I think on my Instagram page, I've got a little highlights that says older women and there are a fair few women that I've highlighted in there. Is that the
2: Bell Instagram? Or is, indeed.
1: Job? Yeah, it's it's Bell. So, um, and that is one of the things, you know, especially um, uh, women of color for me, it's a demographic that I will always give space on my platform to because they're just so underrepresented everywhere else. And you're absolutely right, you know, when it comes to things like panel shows and even like ad campaigns and so on, it's like going back in time 10, 20 years ago, you know, when people just thought it was enough to get a woman on a panel. And it's just like, well, so they now think it's just enough to get an older woman and then Mm -hmm. they don't consider... The intersections around that or you know no one really wants to do an extra little bit of work to figure out who those voices might be and that's something that I since I sincerely hope changes but definitely on Instagram is is how I connect with all of these incredible women on there.
2: Brilliant thank you. Okay I asked these questions I've asked these questions like 95 times and I always have to look at them. It's just ridiculous. What's your emotional age? Uh,
1: I think it's 28 but I couldn't really tell you why. I think it's because even though I know maturity-wise, I'm not 28, I feel like the spirit of being 28 was that I was old enough to know some things, but I also wanted to take chances with everything. And I think that's probably why that's what I feel like mentally. But then it depends on location. If I'm at my parents'
2: house, then I feel 15.
1: Yeah which
2: is lu- ludicrous. <laughs> I wonder if that will ever change. I wonder if you'll like that until you're like 70 or however old, old it is before they're not there anymore.
1: I, I'm not sure because this is definitely something that I um, revisit in the fiction, which is where Belle like, comes across You know, people that she <laughs> grew up with when she was 16, who she hasn't seen for years. And there are flashbacks to the 90s and um and it's instantly that for her it's instantly you know coming face to face with the boy that she would lurk in the bushes and kind of you know um <laughs> look out for but I, I also think there's something incredibly magical about that, about a certain drawing together of experiences that just instantly time machine you into a particular way of thinking or a, a sort of a place in your life.
2: And I, I really like that that I'm that's able to still happen. I loved all those little nineties goth moments. <laughs> it's like it was so it was so- So happy making. And actually, this is something else I meant to ask. How did you come about rediscovering your inner golf at 40?
1: Oh, do you know what, Sam? I think it was around about the time I may have seen you last year, and we were doing Cheltenham, right? That's a much bigger conversation. But I know that obviously, a lot of people, especially when you hit your 40s, um, something kind of I don't know, it's like the switch goes off around your sense of style and, and people just either don't know what to do or they think that they should be doing something and so on. And I think for me, I had seen a lot of friends and family members who let's say now are in their mid to late 40s who who went really bold colours, you know, bright patterns and so on. And I just knew that, that that's just not where I wanted my sense of style to go and I just didn't want to do that. I can't I, see you in
2: that art teacher <laughs> vibe.
1: I can, I I mean, I do it from time to time when I'm in the mood. But what I realized was actually, there was a way of doing grown up goth. But now I actually had the money to buy myself decent clothes that weren't, you know, a tenner in Camden market. And that was something when I when I made that realization, I just thought, Oh, there is a much more grown up way to do this. And by the way, I love dressing like this. So I
2: really feel like, I feel very comfortable and very powerful in what I wear and in a way actually it really does fit in with being older because one of the things I certainly found in my late 40s and early 50s was that I could no longer wear crap you know that kind of you need like a good cut and everything so actually if you're like I don't know that your budget does stretch this but if you're like Rick Owens goth oh my god okay if only or oh, the row. Heaven.
1: So yes, both of those brands, um, I am keeping my eye on. Um, the budget does stretch to it, but maybe when they're in the sale, I think. Yeah. Also, I just buy I buy less now anyway. So it's less about volume and it's more about, you know, um I, I know she's been on your podcast, but I found her advice so invaluable, Cat Farmer, talking mm. about when you buy a piece of clothing can you see it I think in three different ways or and so on and I have actually since listening to that have applied that rule and it has dramatically cut down on on impulse purchases so yeah
2: oh that's good maybe mm-hmm. I should pay attention to that <laughs> I read that on and then she said it on the podcast and I remember thinking mm-hmm. yeah but I wear everything with jeans anyway so <laughs> yeah of course it's gonna go <laughs> Um, anyway, to get back to the point, give us a book recommendation. Book recommendation, I would say The
1: Elements, which is written by Cat Lister, which I think about that book almost every week. It is still one of the most beautiful books I have ever read. And it talks about... Cat becoming a widow at the age of 36, I want to say, which resonates very strongly with me because I became a widow when I was 34. And I've never read anything quite like it. And even if it's not your personal experience, it is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And yeah, I just honestly, the passages that are highlighted in that And the reason why that book is really special is because Kat anchors a lot of what she's going through to the most beautiful depictions of prose around landscape and atmosphere and things that just make us feel a lot bigger than ourselves.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful book, isn't it? And she is absolutely a beautiful writer. Mm, She is. Uh, What advice would you give younger women?
1: I would say learn what to fight for and understand that some people have probably been fighting for it as well for quite a long time, but also learn what to let go of. Um, And I know that that sounds like, you know, a really crappy Instagram quote, but distinguishing between those two things will save you a lot of time, but it will also clarify what to care about. I think there were things that I didn't understand in my twenties that would affect me and people like me as I got older and I just put up with things because I thought, you know, that's what you should do and you shouldn't complain. And I wish I'd been a lot more vocal about a lot of things and I wish I'd I'd let certain things go and not worried about the wrong type of things
2: as well. When did you learn what to let go and what to fight for?
1: I think that my late 30s is when I've, I've always had that mentality of, being someone who wants to write and fight for marginalized people. That has been something I've done since I was a baby journalist at the age of you know, 23. But I would say the clarity around letting go of things definitely was my late 30s and understanding that the things that I might get upset or angry about are not the things that are necessarily going to matter in a year or are even going to be the things that I remember and that actually learning how to just sort of let go of certain things and understanding that sometimes when someone's being a dick to you, it's not necessarily about you. It's just because they've got stuff going on in their lives. Helps me to sort of, you know, not be so self-involved and helps me to kind of understand that the world is actually pretty big and not everything is based
2: around what I do or don't do. I think that's a really big one, isn't it? number of times I hear myself say it, like that kind of, what did I do to make that happen? And it's like nothing. Yeah. There are other things going on in the world that don't involve you. It's crazy. Who's your old bird role model? Oh, can I choose two? You can have as many as you want. Okay. So
1: um, because fitness is a very important part of my life, I would say – um Jacqueline who runs the account on Instagram at her garden gym uh, and she trains women who are in their 50s 60s and beyond her outlook on how women should move their bodies the anti-ageist work that she does yeah. is incredible I mean every time she posts something I'm just thinking I'd like punch the air you know in a really cheesy way and I'm like oh my god that, I, w- I wish everyone thought like this but um, I would say that if we're looking at maybe celebrities, someone like Michelle Yeoh, I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with her because – She's brilliant. She's brilliant, but also, I mean, I know this is such a naive thing to say because how can you ever really know a celebrity? She just seems like such a decent, warm, and loving person as well and, you know, um, advocates for for so many other people as well in her own community. Um, I, I absolutely love her. And her work. her work seems to just keep getting – better and better yeah have you seen and i'm not gonna be able to remember the name of the movie everything now everywhere? everything everywhere yeah i am going uh i'm taking myself on a self-date
2: sam on wednesday uh, and i'm gonna be taking myself to see that oh i'm so rubbish at going to the cinema but I, I just know it's something you need to see on a big screen as well yeah uh what's your superpower
1: i think my superpower is I think it's actually the basic principle of Stronger, which is encouraging women to put down the narrative that is not helping them, that is holding them back. And for all of us, that's our you know inner voice sometimes. And to just be rebellious and to just go, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't want to be that person anymore because... That's the person that everyone else wants me to be. And I'm going to take some time and figure out what it is that I actually do want. And everyone else kind of has to work around that. And that's okay, because I've worked around
2: everyone else my entire life. And I can now envisage thousands of women, like, (laughs) taking off their headphones (laughs) and going, right. (laughs) And last one, how many fucks do you give? Mm,
1: I'd like to say no fucks, but... The reality is I do have a few fucks to give and I wish that I didn't. The fucks that I wish I could release are the ones around, I think, getting older and worrying about the invisibility that might come with that, you know, it's not pervasive, but it's there. And also worrying about just not being able to do the things that I want to do physically, whether that's, you know, weight training or running around and doing various things Um, but I'm working on both of those two things because I just don't think that there's any point in worrying about things that you have probably not very much control
2: over. Are you feeling any sense of encroaching invisibility?
1: No but I think that that's maybe for a few reasons and you know I would say that a a big part of that is because I've inherited my mother's freakish genes, which as has my sister, which means that from the sort of the side of things of visibly looking older, my mother has like a set of genes where she just doesn't look her age. You know, she looks a lot younger than she is. And so there's a part of me that just thinks that, you know, I come from a very privileged point of view because that encroaching sense of invisibility and the kind of prejudice towards older women I don't think I've felt the full brunt of that yet and I think it's probably lying in wait for me but the fact is is that I want to get to the place where I just don't give a shit whether or not it is
2: you will and if anything I would say whether it, it means anything or not I would say you're more visible than ever oh
1: thanks is it wait is this very loud on Instagram no
2: no thank you in a good way thank you Thank you, Porna. It's absolutely lovely to talk to you. Lovely to see you after all this time.
1: It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm obsessed with your podcast, so I'm very happy that I made it.
2: (laughs) Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, Please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at study.media forward slash the shift.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,